Let's try this. I'm back on again. If the preacher is standing there when it goes past 11.30, we know who everybody thinks went long. Uh, so we will, we will do our best to um, do this in a way that's respectful of your time and also that gets through as much as uh, we're hoping to get through uh, this morning. Uh, when I was in school, we were taught a way of learning the names of the planets. My very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. Of course, that's a mnemonic device to help us to remember uh, all of the planets. The last, the pizza standing for Pluto. And then you can imagine how much my world just shattered when in 2009, the International Astronomical Union decided Pluto was not a planet. Instead, it is a dwarf planet. See, there's three criteria that you have to meet in order to be a planet. And apparently, Pluto has not cleared the final criteria, which is that it has not cleared its neighboring region of all other objects. So they change it. Pluto is no longer a planet. Sometime afterwards, the kids can tell me what they use now to help them remember um, all of the planets. But scientists are doing in that process exactly what all of us do in all sorts of different parts of life. We use these mental categories, and we put things in group, and we say these things are alike, and so they belong in a group, and the groups change basically based on how far you zoom out, certain things can look like a group, or how close you zoom in, you can begin to have these different subgroups, because not all the things belong when you zoom in. It's kind of that principle that I learned from watching my other educational source, Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. And the more you zoom in, the clearer it will be that certain things you thought belonged in a category like Pluto, as you zoom in, you might find out that it actually is in a different category. We're going to be looking at John 7 this morning, and I actually want to have that that thought and that framework in our minds that as we group things together, one of the things that Jesus is going to explore is how we group people. And if you zoom out, you might group things differently than if you zoom in. And some of the things that we think belong in a group, because of Jesus coming, we're going to find that there's a redefinition of some of the criteria of what it means to be in a group. So we're going to be in John 7. And and like what happened in John 6 last week, John 7, the first few verses, it just helps us to orient us to where we are in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. We're told in John 7 too that the festival, uh, the Jewish festival of booths, Your translation might say tabernacles was near. What that means is from John 6 to John 7, we've now passed six months. It's six months from uh, the Passover, which we were close to in John uh, chapter 5. So now we come to, uh, sorry, John 6. Now we come to John 7. So six months has passed, but it also means we are only six months away from Jesus' crucifixion. So so we're in John uh, chapter 7, and we've already covered everything but the last six months of Jesus' life. John's letting us know where we are in the chronology of Jesus' life. Uh, He also wants us to know geographically where we are. We're we're told that Jesus is in Galilee, and we're also told that he did not wish to go about in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. So because the festival is coming up, there's, there's this mass migration of people who are going to Judea for the festival of booths. Jesus, however, is not uh, desirous to go. And it's for that reason that Jesus' brothers approach him and they say to him, so his brothers said, leave here and go to Judea 
so that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus' brothers believe they're qualified to play the role of his publicist. They are going to get Jesus into a public relations campaign that he can promote himself by his works. And the brothers are, are aware of what the historian Josephus lets us know, that the festival of booths for the Jewish people was the most important. The highest population you'll have in Jerusalem is people traveling for this festival. So if you are a messianic figure trying to make a messianic claim, where is the place you have to be? Jerusalem at the Festival of Booths, so they're encouraging him to go, encouraging him to make a big splash. It's a publicity tour opportunity that cannot be missed. And then John kind of whispers to the side, and he says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers are saying, look, there's certain things, Jesus, that you're going to have to do if you're going to prove any of these messianic claims. There's a certain way you're going to have to go about being the Messiah if we or if anyone else is going to dare to believe in you. But Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it, that its works are evils. Go to the festival yourselves. I'm not going to this festival, for my time has not yet fully come. As I read this phrase, these verses, I think of this concept that one of these things is not like the other. When you zoom out and you look at Jesus and his brothers, you think, man, these guys look exactly alike, don't they? I got the same mom. Everyone thinks they have the same dad. They grew up in the same home. They went to the same classes, had the same education. I mean, these guys are very much alike. But as you zoom in, Jesus wants us to realize that he is nothing like his brothers. You zoom in and you realize that Jesus is emphasizing there's a difference between us. One of the differences, he talks about how his time is used compared to their time. And Jesus realizes that the world cannot hate you, but the world hates me. So as we zoom in, we realize there's a pretty dramatic difference between Jesus and his brothers. We're going to find in John, there's two agendas for Jesus. There's two missions, there's two plans, there's two purposes. God has his way of doing things. God has his plans and purposes, and the world also has its plans and purposes. And both are saying to Jesus, here's how you need to go about doing this messianic thing. And the question becomes, which way does Jesus follow? Which way does Jesus choose to go about and do his ministry? Is it the way of the world, or is it the way that God, his Father, calls him to it? One of the things I think is interesting as you reflect on the differences between Jesus and his brothers is that Jesus' brothers seem to have much more flexibility than Jesus has. When Jesus says, your, you, your time is any time, Jesus is saying, you can go and come to Jerusalem any time that you wish. You have that freedom and that flexibility. But my time is different. And isn't that weird? Remember, we, we learned about Jesus in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We learned that the Word became flesh, so Jesus is God himself. So you would think if there's any human in the world that has no external regulations, it's Jesus. Think about the things he could externally do that his brothers can't do. Seeing the signs and the miracles, Jesus is not confined by nature in the way that his brothers are. But Jesus is here. He is not talking about an external compulsion, about there are things I cannot do. He's talking about something internal. 
He has such a commitment to the will of his father that he is committing, I will only do what my father wants me to do. I will only do it when my father wants me to do it. And I will only go where my father wants me to go. The brothers can march to the beat of their own drummer. But Jesus, because of his commitment to his father, is restricted to do only what his father wishes. One of the things I think that's essential as you look at the life of Jesus is you need to be able to look at Jesus and see all of the ways that he's just like us. But you also have to be willing to zoom in and see all the ways that he is nothing like us. One of the things about Jesus compared to his brothers and if you compare Jesus to the brotherhood of man is, oh, we love our freedom. I mean, isn't that what we ultimately want? and wish for and long for is the ability to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. There's a, a, a psychologist named uh, James Lauder and he, he looks at, at kids and parent dynamics and he says, you know, really there's this epic battle going on between kids and parents for just who gets to assert their will. He says of toddlers, around 14 uh, months old, the toddler is going to learn a very special word called no. I don't know if any of you ever heard a kid say that word. And what Lauder says is the toddler, when he's saying no, he will inflict no on the environment before the environment can inflict no on the child. I mean, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to go where I want to go. And, and there's these two wills that are going to conflict. It's mom and dad's will against the kid's will. And the only way the kid knows to push against it, just say, no, 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 no. Guess what Lauder says? He says the same thing happens when you become a teenager. He says, adolescence is having grown too large for the space available. Just like that child was once in his mother's womb and the womb therefore couldn't contain the baby and the baby has to be born into a new world with a lot more space. Adolescence is emotionally the same thing where, where the kid knows more than just no now, right? Like mom and dad, you can't tell me what to do. It's kind of the development of the word no, but it's this desire to say, I want to assert my will. And of all of the people in the whole history of the world, the one person who did not push against the will of a parent was God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, who said, my will is to do the will of the Father. And so he's different than his brothers, and he's different than us in his willingness to accept the will of his Father. Jesus grew up in a religious Jewish family, and you would expect then that everybody would applaud him for it, everybody would praise him for it, and he says, no, in fact, by me doing this, the world hates me. When you begin to align with the values of God, when you begin to follow the ways of Jesus, the world is going to begin to look at you differently. And one of the key things that I think that we notice as we read uh, John 7, as we look at Scripture, when we talk about the world... We'll find out here in this passage, we're not just talking about out there. Because the concern is that the world can seep into the values of people who claim God's ways and God's things. Well, we'll leave that idea behind for now. And we'll recognize that as Jesus goes, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone to the festival, then he also went, not publicly as it were, in secret. What? Jesus makes this big deal to his brothers, like, hey, I'm not going to Jerusalem because you tell me to do it. I've got to do the will of the Father. They go off to Jerusalem. Jesus hangs out in Galilee, and then guess what he does? 
heads on down to Jerusalem. Well, what is that all about? This reminds me very much of something that happened in John 2. Remember what Jesus' mother, Jesus' mother said, hey, you do this, and Jesus says, my time hasn't come, and then he turns around and he does it. Jesus is wanting to create, create some space between the suggestion that men make for him and the actions he takes. And he doesn't want anyone to get the idea, I'm doing it because you've suggested it, or because I'm somehow doing your will. So he gives the space so that we know why did he ultimately go to Jerusalem? He went because it was the will of his father. His father's plans, his father's purposes are the most important thing to Jesus. Now we're told he goes, he doesn't go as the brothers say in this big kind of public tour. He actually goes very, very quietly. He goes as in secret, but about the middle of the festival. So the festival lasts for one week. So we're somewhere around three or four days into the festival. Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. He goes in quietly as the festival goes, he's going to become louder, even in the ways that you'll hear his voice as he speaks. And so Jesus said, as he's teaching, the Jews were astonished at it, saying, How does this man have such learning when he has never been taught? Then Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. Anyone who resolves to do the will of God uh, knows whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Those who speak on their own seek their own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is nothing false in him. You look at Jesus from a zoomed out perspective there with all these other religious leaders, rabbis, teachers, and you think they're all alike. And Jesus is trying to let us know, I am nothing like these other teachers. A couple of the ways we recognize that Jesus is not like these other teachers is first of all, who was his, his mentor, his teacher, his trainer? He says, I learned directly from God the Father. They're saying, you didn't go through any formal academic training. There's no degree of a prestigious university on your wall. So how can you be a teacher? He says, hey, I was taught by, by God. And then there's also this recognition that those, uh, some will teach for their own glory, but who does Jesus teach for? He teaches for the glory of his Father. He is differentiating himself. He's saying, zoom in and look, you'll notice that there's a difference between you and between me. One of the ways that Jesus will show how he is different from these other teachers will have to do with his ultimate handling of God's teachings in a way that's different than the others do it. Um, in John 7, 19 through 23, uh, Jesus will say, essentially he's going to say, I'm going to fulfill God's ultimate purpose for the law. And he says of the Jews that they don't keep the law. And so I want us to just explain and understand what Jesus is saying here. Every Jewish teacher understands that, that you're gonna, if you're following the law, you're going to find intersections with different conflicting teachings. Like you're going to have to decide, is this more important or is that more important? So Jesus agrees with that concept. The Jewish leaders agree with that concept, but how they implement it may be a little different. One of the ways that the, they would agree is one of the intersections Jesus talks about in this section of Scripture, John 7, 23 through, uh, 21 through 23, is, is he'll say circumcision. So what happens if you're, you're born and you have to be circumcised on the eighth day, but it's the Sabbath? Do you get circumcised or do you not get circumcised? And the Jewish understanding that is something that brings life is more important, so you circumcise on the Sabbath, even though that's a work. So they agree there. But there's disagreement about what they do when they circumvent the law. Because the law says, do not kill. And guess what they're in the very process of plotting to do to Jesus? To kill him. So they're willing to circumvent the law in order to kill. 
bringing death is a priority to them. But what does Jesus do whenever Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath? He is bringing life. And so Jesus is essentially saying, you're going to have to choose whether you want to follow life givers or death givers. And the choice should be pretty clear that we want to follow somebody who realizes God's law is there to give life, not something that is there to bring death. And then Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I don't think this is summarizing what came before. I think this is introducing what's about to come. Jesus is saying, when you look at me, you need to make a right judgment about me. There's going to be three uh, sections here where there's um, these kind of ironic reasons why they say Jesus cannot be the Messiah. And here's their first reason. Yet we know where this man is from. But when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. It's kind of, uh, might be a little confusing to us because of the idea that we think the Messiah, um, everybody knows where he's come. They're not saying there's nothing in the Old Testament to give us any idea about where you come. There's this understanding coming out of Daniel 7.13 that there's going to be a mystery, some ambiguity about the Messiah. You see a similar concept in Matthew. Uh, for, uh, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's going to be something unexplainable about it. So here's the irony of Jesus. They say, we know where you're from. But guess what? They have no idea where he's from. John 3 was all about where are you from? Jesus, Jesus says, hey, uh, talking about a birth, a birth that's from above. And in fact, Jesus says in John 3, 13, no one has ever ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Where are you from, Jesus? Well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you don't even understand where I'm from. The second uh, reason why they think, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah is, is when the Messiah comes, he will do more signs than this man has done. Well, we know in reading John that Jesus has done signs that people have, uh, small groups of people have been witness to, like the disciples walking on the water. And in fact, we also know that Jesus has done more signs than should be necessary for someone to believe in him. And yet those who are doubting, the answer to the question, how many more signs do I need to do is what? Just probably a couple more. A couple more and then we'll believe you. A couple more and then we'll believe you. But the irony is that plenty have been done. And then they say, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and he comes from Bethlehem in the village where David lived? So where do they think Jesus is from? They say, hey, we know where you're from, Galilee. Where in fact, all of us know from the witness of Matthew and Mark and Luke, where's Jesus from? From the very place they say the Messiah needs to be from. So Jesus has satisfied all the connections. So they're trying to judge whether Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, judge rightly, and we should recognize him as the Messiah of God. And then I think a really important verse 43. So there was a division in the crowd because of him. We talk about, and I think rightfully so, we talk about Jesus coming uh, to bring people together. Jesus coming to bring peace and to, to show love. But there is also a recognition that Jesus comes like a sword that divides groupings. That, that, that families that once were grouping, that now they're separated because of Jesus. That relationships that were grouping, now they can be separated because of Jesus. Jesus, in his very coming, brings about division. And why is that? Why would Jesus bring about division in people's lives? I want to go back to John 7 and explore this as uh, verse 37. This is what Richard read. I'm not going to reread it for now. <clears throat> But let's talk a little bit about the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
All this is what, how it would have been practiced during Jesus' day. There's not a lot in the Old Testament about this, but it's grown and developed to a point. Every day of the seven-day festival, of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would have this water ceremony. And so in the morning, a group of priests would, uh, would head out of the temple, head down into through Jerusalem, coming down the south side, and they would go to what's called the Gihon Spring. It's a, it's a water source. And they have these golden pitchers, and they reach in, and as they get the water, those who are there and who are part of the ceremony, and to find my, here we are, Isaiah 12, 3, they would say, with joy you will draw the water from the wells of salvation. So as he's getting the water, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. And they take that pitcher of water and they begin heading back up to the temple. And as they're going up to the temple, those who are there in the crowds, they're going to be holding um, these branches in their right hand, these citrus branches in their, or sorry, in their left hand, the branches, citrus branches in the right hand. They're going up. When they get to the temple, the the priest will pour water over the altar And they're going to do that every day as a part of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it symbolizes three things as they're doing this. Number one, they're looking back. And they're looking at the water that God provided from the rock and the water that God provided in the wilderness. The second thing is that this is a a prayer that they're doing as it's in the autumn. Uh, It's a time where kind of the droughts are coming up and it's, it's a fest. It's a incorporated as asking for God to continue to provide rain for the crops. But there's also a future expectation in that the, the water symbolizes this future messianic expectation coming out of uh, Zechariah 14.8. On that day, and that's the day of the Lord, on that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summer as in the winter. So every day they do this festival, looking back about water, asking God for water, looking forward to the water that's going to come from Jerusalem, except they do something different on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. They repeat that festival seven times in the day. Now, on the last day of the festival, what happened that day? Seven times, go get water. Seven times, go get water. Seven times, go get water. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he's no longer being quiet. He's no longer being silent. He cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. And let anyone who believes in me drink. And you got to make a choice. Are you going to go down to Gihon Springs? Are, are you going to go and you're going to shout, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring the water. If what Jesus is saying is true, and if he is the Messiah, then you leave the Gihon Springs. You leave those old way of practicing, and you know that he's the one who provides it. Think about a couple who's uh, getting ready to be a part of a, a long-distance relationship, and um, you know, they're both heartbroken and they're both sad and one of them gives the other a phone and says well, at least we can keep in touch while we're gone we can keep in touch while we're gone do you think the day that they're back together in the same city they're going to continue just having their conversation on the phone no it's no longer necessary because what we have been waiting for has come and I think all of us need to wrestle with the question about where are we going to turn for water and think for us, this is being used in a very symbolic sense. Where, where do you go for life? Where do you go for meaning? Where do you go for hope? Where do you go for purpose? And Jesus is saying what? Come to me. And all of us have to decide where we're going to go for water. Uh, our prayer as a church body, my prayer as a minister, uh, the elder's prayer for you is that, is that you will only ever turn to one source for water, to Jesus. And that he will give water that comes in everlasting streams.
So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to respond in any way, if you're looking for some prayers, some direction, some guidance, I just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.